Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. The New York Times calls today's guest Chris Krauss one of the smartest and most original writers on art and culture. A writer, filmmaker, and art critic, Chris Krauss is a frequent contributor to Art Forum, Book Forum, and the Los Angeles Review of Books. Her debut novel, I Love Dick, was hailed by Rick Moody as one of the literary high points of the past two decades. Her books include the novels Aliens and Anorexia and Torpor, and the essay collections Video Green and Where Art Belongs. She's here today on Between the Covers to talk about her latest book, Summer of Hate, a novel that is many things, a romance, a thriller, an examination of capitalism, and an indictment of the prison industrial complex. Welcome to Between the Covers, Chris Kraus. Thank you, David. So the book is, is told a lot from two different protagonist perspectives, Kat and Paul, who both are searching for a reinvention of their lives and st- start up an improbable romance. Can you, can you introduce our listeners to, to your two protagonists? In yeah, you, who are these two people? Yeah. Um, the female character, Kat Dunlop, I guess, is um, of the kind of Kebu milieu. Uh, she's of our world. She lives in L.A. She's in New York a lot. She's like a – she's an art and cultural critic. She's a sophisticated urban person, you know, of the sort of hipster milieu. Um, she's a little burnt out. She's like in her mid-40s, and she's a little burnt out. And the book is set in 05 and 06 at the height of the Bush years. Um, meanwhile, the other character is just getting out of prison in Farmington, New Mexico. His name is Paul Garcia. He, on the other hand, has never been out of the state of New Mexico, except for once or twice. And because he's, you know, a kind of intermittent alcoholic and drug addict, his, you know, various kind of nonviolent misdemeanors have landed him in jail and in prison on and off for the last 20 years. So he's 39 years old. He's just been, he's just been in prison for two years for charging $873 on a fuel credit card of his employer, Halliburton Industries. Normally, these two people in real life, it's, it's not very common that uh, people of these uh, scenarios, their paths would cross. So what is it about Paul that you think is, is um, attracting Kat? Or what is her motivation for, uh, for her wanting to date him? Well, you know, it's funny that, like, our world is that polarized that they wouldn't meet. I mean, Paul is obviously a person of great imagination, not necessarily the same education as Kat, but intelligent, cynical, has the same kind of cheerfully nihilistic sense of humor. I mean, on a certain level, if they were in high school together, they'd get on great. Um, but people are so separated and polarized. And when Kat goes to Albuquerque, she's kind of really fleeing the art world in her life. So she's completely set up to meet someone like Paul, who's charming, kind, and intelligent, but not in the art world. Well, you mentioned the one of the ways in which Paul ends up in the, in the prison system is uh, stealing a relatively small amount of money from his employer. And I, I think one of the great things that Summer of Hate does is is it shows the double standard around class and the possible consequences of certain activities. And, and, and you point this out in the book around how he steals less money than what Kat would spend to put on an art show in L.A. And meanwhile, she's doing all these real, real estate deals and exploiting loopholes and gray areas, potentially crossing the line of legality. And yet, if she were ever caught, I'm sure the circumstances would be quite different. Yeah, of course. I mean, Kat is of the world where she's never been in a situation that she can't talk her way out of. 
Paul is in the opposite world. It's 180 degrees away from that world where, I mean, it's it gets worse and worse. I mean, once you begin to enter that world of legal quicksand, once you have anything on your record, it can only get worse. And, you know, the only fix for these bad legal situations, of course, is money. And that's exactly what these people don't have. The only way the system has of punishing people is with fines and money. And they're poor to begin with. It just makes absolutely no sense. One of the brilliant things uh, um, that you really dramatize well on this book is just how everything conspires against somebody coming out of prison from ever finding their feet again. And here we have a scenario, which I'm sure is quite rare, where we have a, a felon and someone struggling with a drug addiction who stumbles into a relationship where somebody with privilege and with access to power can try to help him and advocate for him. And even in that scenario, the Summer, summer of Hate really shows how, both in big ways and small it's almost impossible to succeed. Everything is stacked against this person. Everything. I mean, he tries to go back to school, the University of New Mexico. He can't enroll. First, first, The first time he can't enroll because he had an old student loan from community college like 18 years ago that was unpaid. So he can't get any student aid until he cleans up the student loan. Then she solves that for him. She pays off the student loan. Everything's supposed to be clear. He gets a letter from the president's office saying, you can't enroll because of the felony, and we're investigating that. The big felony, $873 on the fuel credit card, and you can't enroll because you're a felon. And even after that's cleared up, the psychological effect that that has on the person it's just so incredibly damaging. It makes the person feel so despised and unwanted. They lose more and more confidence. In in your debut novel, I Love Dick, you, you talk a lot about who gets to speak and why, and, and particularly in, in gender terms. And, and here I wonder if in Summer of Hate we're flipping things on its head in, in that respect, that it really has to do with who gets to speak and why around class issues. And it seemed, and, and I wondered if that was intentional on your part, uh, in the sense that it feels like Paul is, because of his class and because of his, his prison record, he's in the, in the more traditional female role in the sense that Cat is out in the public, Cat is the one who's moving from place to place and can manipulate the system to her own benefit. And Paul, literally, because he's managing her properties, is the hearth tender and, and the person who's more dependent in, in, in the scenario. Was that a, an intentional um, conceit on well, your part? One of the things I try to bring out in the book is that as well as like the very real legal and financial obstacles that these people are facing, there's like this deep psychic damage that occurs due to the hatred of the system in general. Um, so that, you know, Kat, of course, with all her privilege and all her education, she sees everything politically. When he's not allowed to enroll at UNM because of the felony, she has a friend on the faculty and they want to go to the Senate and make a big issue of it. He just wants to hide his head in the sand. He's so ashamed and embarrassed. And the last thing he does is to see anything about his situation as political. Um, he could only see it as like a source of personal shame and failure. And this is true not just of Paul, but of all the people around him. There's a line in the book, like, no one sees any connection between their sad, shitty stories. 
when she hires people to work on her buildings in Albuquerque without trying. She's just looking for workers. Every one of these 10 people has been either homeless or in jail or in prison or combination. And none of them see that situation as anything other than their own personal bad luck because she is like enough outside of it not to internalize it. It's totally systemic to her. She wants to talk about it. You know, there's an analytical framework for it. For them, there's nothing. With the issue of the silencing of voices, it's it's kind of remarkable when you think that we have 25% of the world's prisoners in the United States and a higher incarceration rate than a lot of regimes that we consider repressive, whether it be Iran or Azerbaijan. And it's it's not part of the dialogue or discourse at all in, in the United States. Not at all. Um, a writer I like very much, Jackie Wang, who um, from Baltimore, now living in New Mexico, has been doing some really excellent writing about prison America. And she points out that um, just the way that these people's own communities have exiled them in the last couple of decades, like the NAACP used to be like a very strong advocate of jail and prison reform, and they've really distanced themselves from that. So somehow, like the whole public consciousness has gone from maybe in the 70s or 80s that these people are persecuted. They're our cousins. They're our brothers. They're people who are like us. They've completely They've, they've become the other now. We don't want to think about them. They're hidden away. They have, they, they're animals. They have nothing to do with us. And so long as that continues, I can't see that there will be very much prison reform. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking today with author Chris Krause about her latest novel, Summer of Hate. Chris, would you like to read a, a small section from the book? Yeah. Sure, I'd love to. This takes place um, after Paul and Kat have met, and he's working on the buildings, and she's there for the summer. They just kind of start going around together and get to know each other. The chapter is called Sociographics. Paul moves into the condo with Kat when a disgruntled tenant breaks into the two-lane apartment and slashes his tires. Just being there now makes him anxious. The guy was a crackhead, no way of knowing when he'll be back. He leaves early each morning for work, leaving Kat free to read, nap, and write in her notebooks. Evenings, they work on her taxes. Kat starts telling her friends what she's really doing in Albuquerque. They can tell by her voice that she's happy, but it doesn't seem right. Shouldn't she take things more slowly? Some of her colleagues are dating people they've met on matchmaking sites. Determined not to repeat the mistakes of their youth, they're reading books about courtship and marriage. Their words wash over her. On one of their walks to the park, she tells Paul about the connection she's had to trees since she was a teenager. The way certain trees speak almost pour themselves into her. Emotion floods in and she's no longer anyone. Sometimes she weeps, but it's not a bad sadness. To Paul, this sounds mentally ill, but he doesn't dismiss it. Instead, he sits next to her under her favorite oak and then he feels it too. The tree is no longer outside. It starts to enter him. Oh, Paul, she says softly. The whole thing is amusing, but at the same time serious. He imagines the whole cosmos contracting, shrinking down to one single thing, just like he'd imagined it would be if he saw an alien. For sure, cuts way into trees, but what gets him more is the image of him sitting there with a dog, just one speck in the universe. 
It's a really intimate moment, even closer than sex. He can't think what to say back, so he just says, Oh, cat. And then they start laughing. Most Sundays, they drive out of town to explore New Mexico. They visit forlorn tourist parks from the 1960s. They drive through the Navajo Rez, climb mountains, and walk through the lava fields, taking pictures of rocks, forgotten towns, and each other. These trips, Kat thinks, are derives. In its new engagement with the political, the art world has rediscovered mid-century French situationism, reprising the language of Debord and his friends minus the pleasure. Hundreds of artists, their practices grounded in sociographics, displaying photos of buildings, dioramas, and flowcharts like old-fashioned grade school geography projects. She thinks of André Breton describing the day he met Nadja on one of those afternoons we knew so well how to waste. Does her familiarity with other centuries make these drives more enjoyable? Possibly. Kat can't imagine a present that isn't associative. She feels supported by history, almost literally. For Paul, content is all on the surface. Nothing relates to anything beyond itself. Without culture, the subject is isolate. Can there even be conscious without interiority? Lindy England, I didn't know my actions were wrong. The big book and the 12 steps of AA offer behavioral models, not ethics. And this makes Kat fearful. The only time Paul really feels free is when he's driving, losing himself while moving forward. So long as he's on the move, there's no more dread, no panic. During these Sunday trips, Paul and Kat invent car games and make up new verses to old cowboy ballads. They decide to be permanent boyfriend and girlfriend. To Kat, this sounds so dumb, it's perfect. Therefore, she believes it. They make plans for the future. In September, Paul will go back to school. He'll get a BA in psychology. They'll visit every third or fourth weekend flying to each other's cities. As soon as he finishes two or three years with the credits he earned at community college, he'll move to L.A. and go to grad school, maybe USC, maybe UCLA. After that, they'll turn Cat's L.A. compound into an alternative psychiatric facility. Talking about these future plans makes them miss each other already. Secretly, they're both relieved. Who could continue at this intensity? That's great. You, you mentioned you mentioned Linny England from Abu Ghraib in, in this section, and I wanted to ask you about about that. You've talked before about how capitalism thrives on narrative, and that, for instance, in its argument for a war, it'll focus on individual stories and asserting the individual as an isolated unit. And and here you you talk about Kat and her seeing life in an associative way. And in all of your, your novels, you always insist on the presence of a um, political scenario happening either centrally or in the background, whether it be the first Gulf War and in Torpor, or whether it's the Guatemalan death squads and I Love Dick, and, and here we have Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib. And I was wondering if that was your your pushback in a sense that you can't have an, an individual story that is abstracted from the, the historical context in which it exists. Oh, I totally believe that. I mean, that's my own experience as a person kind of waking up every day. My experience in 2005, 2006 was totally polluted by the paramilitary atmosphere of the Bush years. 
you know, every day I felt kind of this, this kind of stone in my heart, like I was doing something wrong, but there was no way to make it right. I mean, I think I think we're always all our circumstances and surroundings. And, you know, commercial literary fiction kind of edits that out in this solipsistic way, as if it's only the relationship, only the person and their family and their immediate romantic relationships. But so much is colored by the world around us. And the choice of setting it then is also interesting because indefinite detention and violations of habeas corpus and, and the, the crimes that went on in the Abu Ghraib prison really resonate against Paul's predicament in, in being a felon and what happens with the silencing and making invisible of the prison population domestically. Yes. You know, and sadly, it continues. I mean, right here in Portland, right? Isn't this the place, the case of these um, anarchists? The anarchists who refused to testify. Yeah, to that's the in the Northwest, right? Yes, it was so upsetting. It's almost a reprise of something I talk about in the book, the Steve Kurtz case, when the Buffalo artist Steve Kurtz was arrested under the Patriot Act on terrorism charges. I mean, finally, years later, the case was thrown out, but his life was ruined. It cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, and it was hardly a ripple in the art world. You know, it was covered other places, but it wasn't covered in the art world. And the, the, the same thing with this case, the, uh, the the Portland group with the grand jury. I mean, everything in the world about Pussy Riot and like hardly a ripple about what was happening in Portland. And it was so upsetting. Yeah, it's it's certainly not making it into the mainstream media. No. Not at all. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers. And we're talking today with author Chris Krause about her latest novel, Summer of Hate. You, you've said before that you're often stalking the, the ghost of another writer when you're writing a novel. And, and you've mentioned, I, I believe it was Flaubert with Torpor and and it was Henry James with I Love Dick. Is is there someone's ghost you're stalking in Summer of Hate and when you when you wrote this book? Well, maybe not stalking as closely as the other books, but definitely influenced by. I read a lot of Patricia Highsmith. And I was definitely writing in the tracks of Patricia Highsmith's thrillers. Um, and Chester Himes was another one. Yeah. He, he, uh, wrote, he wrote noir books, but he also wrote amazing literary fiction about race and class. He was incarcerated for seven years in his youth. He didn't begin writing. He began writing while he was in prison. And his most amazing book about it, um, Yesterday Will Make You Cry was only published in its entirety after his death. In his own lifetime, it was completely bowdlerized. But he was a great, great writer. In, in your review of, of Sheila Hetty's most recent book, How Should a Person Be?, uh, you talk about how she's very aware of the dialectic between art and artifice. And I, I feel like that's something that could be um, turned around and, and being used as a description of your work as well. And part of that is... It feels like your your novels intentionally uh, defy categorization. They're autobiogra- semi autobiographical. They're semi fictional, and they 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 bring in a lot of the political. And they feel also like they're more motivated by ideas than than the conventions of a novel in terms of plot and narrative. Uh, is are there is there a literary tradition that you you feel a part of that? taps into a book that's motivated more from from an idea than from a characterization, perhaps? Oh, I think so. Yeah, there's a whole 20th century tradition of that. You know, the modernist writers like Camus 
And sorry, but a writer I feel especially close to in that way would be the American writer Mary McCarthy. Many of her books, I would say um, uh, Birds of America. Birds of America was a huge influence when I was working on Torpor. And um, the company she keeps, you know, that was like also a huge influence. And her, you know, her, she's, Mary McCarthy was like just all over the map in terms of her interests. And, you know, she was partisan, partisan review. She was like a political person. She was a naturalist person. She was like a sort of social history person. She was a fiction person. It was just a really large and generous view of what fiction is. And, and I wondered if if your own past as a as a journalist influences that at all. Like I think of of John Dos Passos and early twentieth uh, century fiction that brought in like newsreel um, information into the fiction itself. And I feel like you do that somewhat when you bring in um, these uh, political things that are happening in the background and how they're they're resonating against the the individual struggles. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a whole great American tradition of that, too, in the 20th century, John Dos Passos. But yeah, I mean, I did when I was very young, I worked as a journalist, and then I dropped it. And I didn't start writing until much later. But when I did finally start writing again with I Love Dick, having had that background was incredibly helpful. Because I didn't have that like white page thing at all. It was like I had worked on a daily newspaper where it's like, you know, Every day you write a 600-word story, at least, you know, and you write it in a room with 50 other people. So I didn't have any inhibition about writing once I decided to start writing. When you look at your novels, viewing torpor as happening before I Love Dick, even though you wrote it afterwards, it, feel like, it feels like there's a, a trend around uh, the hermetic bubble in the sense that in torpor you're you're dealing with – a woman who wants to perpetuate a relationship that that may be dying by having a child and about the issues of of belonging within a tight knit community and then with I love dick there's the invitation of a of a third party into the bubble and then here with summer of hate it feels like cat it wants to explode the bubble altogether like she's not only leaving her community but having a relationship that crosses all of society's boundaries in a sense, uh, do you do you see that lineage that through your your fictions? Yeah, definitely. Well, the first three novels, I Lived Dick, Aliens, and, and Torpor, were really kind of a trilogy. They went together. When I started, I Loved Dick. It's like I knew right away that it would like take three books to sort of like do all the content that was there. You know, about that, you know, situation in the art world and the history. And, you know, this was kind of like my generation and contemporaries and the people before me that I wanted to talk about. And, yeah, this book is something else. When I when I wrote Where It Belongs, my book of art essays that kind of came out last year, sort of while I was still working on this, that was also sort of like something else. That was kind of opening the door and looking a little bit further afield out of my immediate milieu to like all different kinds of artists, you know, not just ones that are exhibiting in kind of main A-list galleries, but like a little hole in the wall that was open for two years in Echo Park and then closed and kind of tracking down those people and writing their histories. So I've become much more interested of in, in kind of like, you know, I mean, it's a journalist thing, really. It's like, oh, my God, what a story. I want to write that, you know. So I've, I'm kind of done with having the sort of, you know, my alter ego being 
the main character, I think, at least for the time being. And this book is much more the story of the character Paul Garcia. And I'm much more interested in writing about other situations. And do you have an, any inkling what the next project's going to be? Oh, I have several ideas. I keep thinking in the back of my mind that since nobody has yet written a biography of Kathy Acker, I ought to do it. I, I feel like I could do it. It would be a huge undertaking, but I think I might like to do it. And um, and I want to write stories. And um, I'm actually in Portland because um, Stephanie Snyder at Reed College, the curator of the Cooley Gallery, commissioned a new work by me. It's a little book called Kelly Lake's Story and Other Stories. And we just had the launch for that this weekend. And those are ideas around like art and place and community. And I think I might even go on to write a longer book about that. That sounds fantastic. Can you can you tell us briefly before we go today about your about your work as a co-editor at Semia Text, um, what the the press is and 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 what you do there? Yes, yeah, sure. Well, um, I am a co-editor with Silver Lodrinker and Hattie Alcalte. Since two thousand two, the three of us have kind of shared editorship equally. Um, Silver began Semia Text as a journal in the nineteen seventies. He began publishing books in 1982 when he introduced Baudrillard to American readers for the first time. He also introduced Paul Virilio. Um, he did work by Michel Foucault, Deleuze and Guattari long before it was fashionable or published by academic presses. And he did them in these elegant little black books called Foreign Agents. And um, when I joined Semia Text in 1990, I started a fiction series that was like, instead of the little black books, it was the colored books. And instead of French men, it was going to be American women or mostly women and mostly American. But it was going to be, you know, an intense subjectivity um, that was like in its way kind of like like a manifestation of the radical subjectivity that French theory talks about. Um, and then in 2002, we kind of like, you know, diffused it out a bit and the we all work equally on the different imprints, and we are under the auspices of MIT Press now, without which I don't think we could continue to do this. We publish about 16 books a year, and Hetty's the only person who works full-time, but we've continued to do amazing projects. Silver has been recently interested in the Italian economic theorists, and he's done a whole run of post-autonomist Italian economic theory. Hedy has brought in writers like Abdallah Taya, the first openly gay writer in Morocco, very well known in France, but we were the first people to publish his work in English. And we have a number of other great projects. The Intervention Series, you know, to do something more activist and topical. Well, it was a real pleasure to have you on Between the Covers today, Chris. David, thank you so much. We were talking today with Chris Krauss, the author of Summer of Hate, You've been listening to Between the Covers, and I'm David Naiman, your host.